Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, January 21st, we are studying Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Fresh from his baptism in the Jordan River by John, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Yeah, it's good to be back on with you, Tim. As we get started, let's talk a little bit of context. We've come through the first three chapters of the Gospel according to St. Luke. What's he been doing so far in setting the narrative up to get us to the temptation of Jesus? Yeah, the temptation of Jesus... Um, it, it comes after a genealogy, which uh, is, of course, for me and you, Tim, the most fascinating genre in Scripture. That's but right. uh, for a lot of people, reading through a genealogy is just, you know, um, especially Luke's genealogy is, is longer than uh, Matthew's. And so it's just names, 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 names. But the temptation of Jesus is closely tied to his baptism, which immediately precedes this, and it, um, his baptism, the genealogy sets the stage for Adam, at, or I'm sorry, Jesus as the new Adam, because the genealogy in Luke traces his, his human ancestry all the way back to Adam, uh, which is different than um, in Matthew. It only goes back to Abraham, back as far as Abraham. So Matthew is very keen on Jesus, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of David. And in Luke, you get Jesus, the son of Adam, who is also uh, going to do what Adam could not. And I think right away, this, um, this helps us to see what's going on in the temptation of uh, Jesus is a, what word do you want to use here, a recapitulation, or it is a, he is succeeding where Adam failed. And so we should have, as we go through, I'm sure we can talk about some of the similarities between Jesus and Adam. Yeah, I think, I mean, just to, and we talked a little bit about this with the genealogies, you know, and the differences between Matthew and Luke, but when you look at the the placement, as you brought out, here in Luke, it comes between the baptism and the and the temptation. With the way Matthew structures things, I think with the temptation of Jesus, you're invited a little bit more there to compare Jesus being successful where Israel had failed in the wilderness, but I do think you're right here in Luke with with the way that he puts the genealogy between the baptism and the temptation. It invites you to compare Jesus and his success where Adam had had failed. I mean, and I think that, well, what is the link between all of this? The, the link between the baptism, the genealogy, and the temptation. How does Luke tie those together? Yeah, the uh, there's a couple of ways, but I think it's it's good to... to just point out here, sometimes the temptation of Jesus, I remember thinking about thinking about this at the seminary, um, you know, none of his disciples are with him yet. So no one else saw this. And so it's always been kind of a, a, a an interesting question in my mind anyways, how Luke 
records it or, or even how Matthew records it. But, um, you know, Jesus must have told them um, that that would maybe be the most straightforward way of, for how they would know this. And I think the reason I, I make a point on that, Tim, is um, it's easy to sort of sweep this aside because there's no other disciples around, because there's no other human um there's no other human agents in the in the narrative. It's just this thing that happens within Jesus, and you can kind of take it or leave it. Almost is is sometimes the way that we view this. Um, but I think it's crucial for his the rest of his ministry, and we'll look at one of the the ways that he talks about that later. Um, but to go to your question of how this gets connected with his baptism, it's in verse one of the of chapter four, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. So you get that link back to at his baptism, the spirit descends on him, even though, right, we would say that, well, he was conceived by the spirit. And so he's always had the spirit. Now the spirit is given again in a, in a more public, uh, what I would say is a more official way. He is anointed as the, you know, the official Messiah. And here's his first act as the Messiah as the Christ, the spirit leads him out. And so you get the spirit, it's, it's on purpose, right? This is not a mistake. This is not like temptation is for us where it happens to him. I mean, it certainly happens to him, but I would put it this way, Tim, he is looking for a fight, right? He goes out for this purpose. He wants to confront the devil. He wants um, to begin his ministry this way by attacking uh, the devil out there in the wilderness. And I, I think that's a, a helpful way. Jesus, think of it this way, Jesus on the offensive, instead of, you know, just kind of plodding along and all of a sudden the devil comes attacking him. Jesus is not on the defensive here. He is, but it's in an offensive way. <laughs> I, th I think that's a, that's a helpful note as we get started to, to see how Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. This happens on purpose because, you know, when we think about temptation, and this is where, and I know we're going to talk about this, there's a difference between what Jesus does in his temptation and what happens to us in our temptations. But I do think we, we often think of temptation and is we're defending against temptation. And yet Jesus takes the offensive here. He goes into the wilderness. He goes to confront Satan led by the Spirit. I think is that's going to be a helpful thing for us to differentiate between what happens with Jesus, and then how we use that, what we make of it for our lives as Christians. And I, I know we're going to talk about that. I don't want to get too far afield. You you mentioned, I'm going to go here, though, because you mentioned already something Jesus is going to talk later about his temptation and explain it a little bit. Where, where do we need to go for that? Yeah, Luke 11 is the is the chapter here. And um, this, I know, <laughs> this, this is etched in my mind uh, with coronavirus because it was the third it was the third Sunday in Lent back in the year 2019 back in the former times you know and uh, that was the last Sunday before we had you know bans on mass gathering and and we had to do all kinds of uh, other things but um, it's the reading for the third Sunday in Lent that's just my my only point there <laughs> and this is the instance where Jesus is he casts out a demon and he gets accused of being in league with the devil by the Pharisees, I think, and the scribes. Um, so it's it's chapter 11, and uh, it's the account kind of starts at verse 14. But the key verses for, for what Jesus says um, really begin 
down here uh, in verse 21, and I'll just read it for us, okay? Um, when this, These are the words of Jesus. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. And so, you, you know, there's a lot of he's in there and the pronouns maybe are a little confusing. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is the devil is like a strong man and he guards his own palace and he has the world in some way. He has the world under his sphere, under his control until a stronger one comes. And what Jesus is saying, he's comparing himself to the stronger one, right? And he's saying, I come and before I can strip him of his, uh, the spoils, I have to deal with him first. I have to deal with the strong man. And I think that seeing that um, as what's really happening in the temptation, here Jesus binds the strong man so that he can plunder his house. That is, uh, that's how I would connect the, the temptation of Jesus with the rest of his ministry. And it's certainly especially the case with when he's casting out demons um, which, you know, is that just like one part of his ministry or is that kind of part of the whole thing? You know, the whole thing, his whole mission is to reclaim us, um, to redeem us from the power of the adversary. I think that fits in very nicely with where Luke is going to go in chapter four. With, I mean, if, if we see Jesus here in his temptation, taking the offensive, going to that strong man, with the intent to bind him and then take us away from him and, and bring us into his kingdom. That fits very nicely with the text that Jesus is going to preach on in the very next pericope in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. That, there you go. That yeah. what Jesus is doing here is the very— uh, I don't know if it's the start because you have his baptism. I mean, and, and he knows what he's doing even as a 12-year-old boy. I mean, he's, he's got this sense that he's he has to be about his father's business. But it, it fits in that that whole narrative then, seeing Jesus, that that's what he's doing. And I, I think that that gets us to the question because maybe it seems odd. Like, why would, why would Jesus, why would the Spirit lead Jesus to do this? Why not kind of avoid the devil? No, he's actually got to go and take the fight to the devil in order to win us for his kingdom. Yeah, and that's, um, I think this is just the way Jesus talks about it is the best is the best way to think about it, right? Let him be your guide here. Um, he cannot redeem us unless he deals with Satan. Just like he can't, he can't um, forgive us unless he deals with sin, right? So atonement has to be made. The price has to be paid in his blood. And only then can the, the forgiveness uh, be proclaimed. Otherwise, it's just sort of an empty message. And so if he's running around saying, you know, you're free from the devil's power, but I didn't really deal with the devil's power, um, then, you know, that's a, that's a hollow message. So first, he's going he's gonna, to uh, face down the strong man uh, or the, the tempter, the adversary, and then he's going to plunder his house. Let's go ahead and read the text. We've, we've talked about a number of things in it already. Let's see what the text says, and then we're going to come back to some of these themes that we've already laid out. So this is Luke 4, beginning at verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. 
And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall, lo- you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That is the temptation of our Lord, Luke 4, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Apple, before we before we get into detail here, let's go back to that thought that you brought up that we need to see Jesus here as a new Adam and, and that connection between the genealogy leading into the temptation of Jesus. What? How do we make that connection and, and how do we see it here in this text? Uh, you can see it coming out of the genealogy simply by the fact that Luke, as he's listing the genealogy, goes all the way back to Adam. So Jesus is Adam's son. Um, you can also see it in the temptation that the devil uh, presents to Jesus with those, the first and the last one, He the book ends here, if you are the son of God. Well, in the immediately prior genealogy, who was called the son of God? Adam was. Okay, so textually, that's how I would get there. Um, but also, the, the I don't know if this is the right word, thematically, um, don't hold me to that, that word, but Jesus is in the same, is in a similar position to Adam, in that he comes, Adam was sinless, right? And Jesus is sinless. Um, and they both face a temptation. This is how his, uh, one of the ways in which his temptation is unlike ours. Um, we are not sinless. And even in our temptations, uh, Jesus's temptation is different than ours. So I, I would, this is maybe overstating it, but the point of this passage is not to say, here's how you should handle temptation. Sometimes that's, oh, see, you, if you just quote, if you know the Bible really well, then you'll be able to handle temptation. And that's what Jesus is just giving us an example for how to face temptations. That's fine, um, but it's that's missing, I think, the more central point, right? Jesus, yes, he does become our example, but he is doing something here that is unlike us. And what he's doing is he is undoing what Adam and all of Adam's sons have have done. He is, uh, the way we said it before, he's succeeding where Adam failed. So um, just in terms of their situation, Adam faces the trial, the temptation in the garden, and he falls. Um, Jesus faces this trial and temptation, and he overcomes it, right? He passes the test. He he succeeds. Hmm. Can, can we even connect it to the, the baptism as well? And I mean, just to, with the language of the Father there in Luke 3, you know, he speaks to Jesus, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. There's that Son of God language again. And and even the—I'm just thinking about this right now, the, the language that the Father is well pleased with Jesus. But when God looks at his creation in Genesis 1 and 2, he says, it is good, such that when he looks at Adam, he is pleased with Adam. 
here here again we see Jesus now taking Adam's place and and going to succeed where Adam had failed. And I do think, I mean, in the sense that, like, okay, he's the son of God. And and the way that we might hear that, well, yeah, Jesus is is God. He's God's son. He's perfect. Of course he's going to defeat the devil. But here we're going to see Jesus defeat the devil as a man. And I, I mean, I think that's a that's a pretty key point too, because he's not he's not doing it for himself. He's doing it in our place for us as a substitute. I mean, in the, you know, like I'm thinking back to a couple of texts previous in Luke 2, where you know, Jesus will keep the law by going to the temple on, a, on multiple occasions there in Luke 2. He didn't have to do that for himself. He did it to, to be in our place. And I wonder if we can say something similar here in Luke 4, not, not quite the, the same, you know, the exact same situation, but Jesus isn't the de- defeating the devil because he needs it. He's defeating the devil because we need it. Going back to the idea of the, the strong, stronger man defeating the strong man. Yeah, and if um, going along with what you're saying there is seeing this connection between Jesus and Adam. So Jesus is a new Adam. He is uh, greater than Adam. Um, Adam is significant not just because he is uh, the first one, but become but because he is the father of of us all. Right? He is our first father, and so he will be the source of um, subsequent human life. Well, Jesus. Um, you know, in Isaiah's Christmas prophecies, Jesus is called the eternal father um, or almighty father, excuse me. That can sometimes get a little confusing because, well, he's the son is not the father in Trinitarian language, but he is functionally like a father to us. He is the source of a new humanity. And that's the that's the key thing here with um, him succeeding where uh, Adam fails. Adam falls in his temptation and so becomes the father of um, a fallen humanity, Jesus is going to succeed. And I think you're right. He succeeds not just as God, but he succeeds as the God man, right? He's one of us has conquered the devil and he then becomes the source of a new humanity. With that thought in mind, because I think it connects, talk a little more about how we see this text with, with Jesus not only as example, and and I think Jesus not primarily as example here. I know we're not going to toss that out completely, but we want to see first Jesus as as Savior. We've talked a little bit about this in other texts. Again, in in Luke two, where Jesus is a boy in the temple, there's a there are some connections where we see Jesus as our example and some of the things he does. But we need to see him first as our Savior. Why do we need to see that here again? And, and then without throwing out Jesus as example, because I do think we want to see that at least a little bit. Yeah, sure. I, um, one way to get at this is to, to think about his temptations. And as we go through each of them, I'll try to make this point um, a little clearer. But um, Jesus is tempted. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is tempted in every way <clears throat> like we are except without sin. Okay, so yes, Jesus faced every temptation common to all of us. At the same time, there's something different about Jesus than about um, all of us, and that is his his, uh, office, his calling, right? Um, There's a couple other things that are different about Jesus, but he is the Christ. And so as the Christ, he is going to be tempted um, in a different way, just like my wife is tempted in different ways than I am, right? Because she is a mother, she is a wife, um, I'm not. So I don't face the temptations of uh, motherhood 
like she does. Um, the devil tailors his temptations, we could think of it this way, to the person, to their, to their vocation, I guess. And uh, so in, in these three temptations, um, he's not just facing any old temptation, right? It's not just, it's not just common temptations that, that every human faces. Um, it's, these things are unique to him as the Christ, as the Messiah. The devil wants to, wants to attack him on that particular point. Um, certainly any sin would disqualify Jesus as the Messiah, uh, but especially as the devil works here, here, he wants Jesus to trip up in his like messianic task, you know, and uh, if I can kind of skip ahead and give our listeners, um, I'll, I'll kind of give the end away here. He, all of the temptations have this in common. Um, the devil wants Jesus to avoid suffering, right? Enter into some, some kind of glory without the suffering. And so that is the, that is the messianic temptation to achieve glory without suffering. And that's what our Lord re refuses to do because uh, he knows and he believes and he um, wills to go the way of the cross and only then enter into his glory. Okay, so we, we need to see these temptations as temptations the devil is throwing at Jesus specific to his office as the Christ. And I think to just to, to make that point again, we see this come up later in the Gospels. You know, when, when Jesus first tells his disciples, that he's going to suffer and die there in Jerusalem. And Peter says, no way, it's not going to happen, Lord. That's why Jesus responds as vehemently as he does, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then it, it comes up again, if you're, if, you've, if you're following this, it'll come up again on the cross through the mouth of the, the religious leaders and the, the others who are mocking them there. And they say to Jesus something like, you know, if you are the chosen one or if you are the Christ, that there's a variety of titles that you used. But over and over again, it's the same temptation. Save yourself. And, and that seems that that's, well, that is, that's what you're saying is that's what's happening here. The devil wants Jesus. I mean, sure, if he could get him to make stones into bread, like, okay. But the point is, <laughs> don't be who you are. Don't be, or maybe, maybe we say it like this. Don't be the son of God on the father's terms, to take it back to the baptism. Be the son of God, be the savior on your own terms, Jesus. And, and those own terms would be not going to the cross. Yeah, and those terms here are do it on my terms, right? You can, Sure, you can be the Messiah. You can even have all the, all the um, glory of the kingdoms of this world, which the Messiah will have. And Christ will have the obedience of the nations. Um, but the devil says, but do it on my terms, right? Bow down to me. And uh, Jesus refuses because he says, no, I'm going to do it my father's way, which is my way as well. And uh, he's going to go the way of the cross and only then, right, uh, only then enter into his glory. So in that sense, the, the temptations that we see here in Luke 4 are unique to Jesus and are, are, are attacking very specifically his office as the Christ. And yet, I think at the same time, we can make comparisons where there are similarities to Adam and what he in what he's tempted, and then our own temptations. And it, maybe if we can just say it more broadly, thinking, you know, in the temptation that Adam and Eve are given there in Genesis 3, well, one, one thing that does stand out is like the food comes into play in both. And this thought of, you know, think about what the devil says to, to Eve 
know, you, <laughs> how, how does the temptation go that you'll, you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil? And, and the temptation there, if I can say it this way, to try to connect it to what happens to Jesus, the devil's asking Adam and Eve, be like God on my terms, on the devil's terms, on your own terms, rather than being in the image of God in which you were created and he gave you. Such, such that, I guess my point is, there's a uniqueness to Jesus' temptation, and yet at the same time, what he's being tempted, there is a temptation that, maybe in a broader way, does afflict us in yeah. the same way. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, and I think this is this is because sin is, uh, there is a common root um, to sin. So it branches out and it flowers and it, um, you know, the fruit looks different. And so to use the example I said before, like um, a wife and a mother is, are the, they're going to be tempted in different ways than a, a father and a husband. And yet at the same time, I think you're right. We would say there is some commonality in, in all sin. And so what's, com- what's common to every sin? Well, it's a lack of trust in God. Um, it's a lack of trust in the Father, a lack of love for him and for his will. And so any, any sin is going to have some common root. Um, so yes, even though Jesus is here, and I think it's good for us to see him um, being tempted and succeeding in his um, messianic or Christological office, um, Christic off it, whatever you want to use the term there. Um, it's also true that he does show us, um, this is how to handle all temptation. And so it, it's not entirely wrong to say, here's your, here's our example, uh, for how to, how to face temptations. Well, and, and even, and, and I, I do, um, we should, I think, see Jesus as an example once we've established all these other things. But I, part of my point in saying that his, his temptation is similar to ours is that that same idea again that we mentioned earlier, that he's going to succeed where Adam failed and where you and I fail as well. It, you know, when when we are put into the temptation to avoid suffering, we often choose the path that avoids suffering and, and has glory now. Whereas Jesus succeeds and he does that in our place. So, such I get, and, and my point there is that his his temptation is yes unique to his office as the Christ, but there's that commonality with us so that what he does counts for us and, and fulfills what we could not do. Yeah, I think this is, um, go back to what we were saying about being the the true Adam. So Jesus is going to be um, the true, uh, he, he is going to be what Adam always was supposed to be. And maybe we could even say even more because he's also, you know, uh, he is the son of God. So he is uh, the the Son of God has taken to himself a human uh, human nature. So th- that was never uh, in the cards, so to speak, for Adam. But Adam was meant to pass the temptation, right? The trial in the garden did not come to Adam and Eve apart from God allowing it. I'm not saying God caused it. Um, you know, we're very, we don't want to say that because that's not uh, that's not in keeping with the pattern of, of sound words, but uh, it is the fact that the trial is allowed to come to Adam and Eve, and they were meant to succeed there. And if they had, now this is where we're getting into maybe some speculation, but if they had, they would have gone on to something better, right? And that's what, uh, this is where when Jesus is facing these temptations, he succeeds, and it's not just like, ho-hum, no big deal. I guess I got that out of the way, but I'm going to face it again tomorrow. 
and the next day and the next day and the next day. But when he succeeds here, there is a um, an upgrade and <laughs> an upgrade. There is a he is ready to do something now that he couldn't have done without doing this. Right. Well, and that fits in, I think, very well with what we were saying at the very beginning is to Jesus being led. He's going out to Satan as the stronger man to conquer the strong man to free us as his own people. We're going to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We are looking at Luke chapter four this morning with Pastor David Appold. We will be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Friday, January 21st. We are studying Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor David Appold. He serves at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we're laying the foundation for what's happening here. Jesus as the new Adam succeeding where humanity has failed. And when we get to the actual temptations that are recorded for us, there are three, as we know from the Gospel according to St. Matthew as well, but St. Luke gives them in a different order. So before we go through the temptations one by one, just a, any comments on that? Why why a different order between Matthew and Luke? This, this is going to sound uh, dismissive, and I don't mean it to be dismissive, um, but apparently it doesn't matter. <laughs> not that it, not that it doesn't like it's of no importance, but um, for the evangelists, the order in which they are recorded is apparently not critical to the story, right? Um, otherwise, we would have to say one of them got it wrong. You know, you can't tell the story that way. You can't, uh, you can't do the third temptation as the second temptation, Luke. Um, you have to do it in the same order as Matthew, or you know, you, maybe if you want to flip it around, so. Um, the Spirit sees fit to uh, inspire each of the evangelists to record the temptations in a different order. And maybe, you know, um, there's, again, I don't mean to be totally dismissive. There may be some uh, reason why uh, in the Gospel of Matthew it goes in that order. And here in the Gospel of Luke, you get one, three, two. You know, I'm I'm influenced by uh, David Scare, who is always talking about Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. So in my mind, that was the order, and Luke has, you know, changed the order. Um, but it it doesn't affect the story. Uh, it doesn't affect the veracity here, the truth of it, um, to put them in a different order. One of the ways that I've I've thought about it, and I think you're right that the order is is not what's essential to the the account. But one of the ways that I've thought about it, uh, maybe uh, in a historical way is that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And it sounds like being tempted by the devil for 40 days, such that when it gets recorded here, it's recorded at a moment in time, as in a sequence one by one. But I, I don't think it's hard to imagine that Jesus is being tempted all along during these 40 days. 
and maybe with the same temptation more than once or coming at him in a slightly different way, such that, again, the order is not what's important, but that Jesus is tempted in these three ways is the key. And then Matthew and Luke are, are led by the Holy Spirit to record them in a different order, perhaps for their own purposes within their own narrative. That is one of the ways that I've I've thought about it that still, I think, fits for, you know, this is a historical event. These things really happened. Yeah, the it's always interesting when you get to a list in Scripture uh, and you read different commentators. One will say um, the most important thing is what comes first. And then other people say, no, 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 it's building, right? And so what's most important comes last. And then other people say, no, it's the middle. It's it's what comes in the middle. Everything's leading in and then coming out. So which way is it? Which way? <laughs> I don't know. Both of them do record the first temptation as the first. And, and I do think there's that connection between the, the fasting that Jesus has been doing for the 40 days and then if you are the Son of God. So le- leaving behind Matthew for the moment and paying attention to the way Luke records it, before we dig specifically into each of the three, what are some of the commonalities between all three of these? How, how do they all attack, the as we said earlier, the office of the Christ in, in their own unique way? Yeah, I think, um, well, certainly in the first and the last one, you have a similar phrasing of the temptation, if you are the son of God, and if you are the son of God, and then comes the what is offered by the devil. And uh, I think it's worth pointing out that the things that are put before Jesus uh, in the first temptation and in the last one are not inherently sinful. So eating bread is not inherently wrong. And I think even Jesus um, using, what, his power to kind of supernaturally make food, would there be, is is there something inherently sinful about that? I don't think that there is. Um, now, I, I'm willing to be corrected on that, but um, simply the act is not wrong. What's wrong is that it becomes this way that he can subvert or he can um, take himself out from being under God's uh, authority. And that's what the temptation is. Similarly, in the third one, um, jumping off of the roof, okay, is that inherently sinful? Um, I don't know. Jumping from high places is not a good idea, <laughs> um, but but the what Jesus is what Jesus's answers go to, and this is where we 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 should always stick with the way Jesus answers is going to be on point, right? Sometimes this is this is hard. Um, you don't always follow the flow of Jesus's teaching, and so he'll say things that sound to us like non sequiturs, like, "Well, what did that have to do with what we're talking about?" Um, but let's assume that he knows better than we do, and that he what he says addresses the point right on point. Um, and so when the devil says, you know, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus says, this is a temptation about trust. Okay, then it's, that's really what the temptation is about. Not just, hey, you're hungry. You shouldn't be hungry. Um, eat some, eat some food. Um, Jesus is saying, no, it's okay if I'm hungry. Uh, what matters most is that I trust in my father and I wait on his, on his timing. I think it's a very helpful comment to pay attention to the way Jesus responds so that we can recognize what the temptation from the devil actually is. I think that's a very helpful comment. So let's let's do that with the first one then, and you've already started to do this. The first temptation, again, just to, to re- reiterate, Jesus has fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. That makes sense. 
And the devil comes to him and says, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So with that in mind, we want to pay attention to what Jesus says as the to recognize what the temptation is and how Jesus defeats the devil. What's what's going on here? Yeah, Jesus quotes uh, from Deuteronomy. Actually, in all of these, he's quoting Deuteronomy. Um, this is chapter 8, verse 3 of Deuteronomy, I believe. And so um, the if you look at the context there, um, this, is, this has to do with why God, um, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and saying to them, the Lord led you into the wilderness so that you might experience hunger, so that you might learn to wait on the Lord, that he will provide for you. And so Jesus is saying, my hunger is not, I do not need to avoid the hunger. I don't need to forego the, the, and there is a suffering involved in being hungry, right? I don't need to forego the suffering of hunger, the pains of a, of a stomach, uh, because I'm learning or I am, I am practicing, I am exercising faith in my father. Uh, to provide for me, which is what Israel was supposed to learn in the wilderness. That's what they were supposed to be doing there in the wilderness. Is is part of this that I mean, with if you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. Then the the temptation would be, it's it's almost like the devil is putting it to Jesus like this: You've been in the wilderness for forty days, getting hungry, so f- satisfy yourself as if this wasn't the Father's will for you, thinking through, you know, that it was the Spirit given by the Father in the baptism. That's how Jesus was led out here. And it's as if the devil is telling Jesus, just ignore the previous 40 days as not from your Father by making this stone to become bread. And Jesus says, no, what I've been doing here in the wilderness in fasting has been a part of my Father's will for me, so I will receive it as a gift from him rather than trying to avoid it and say I'm say I know better than God. Yeah, if if you are the son of God, I think it's it's good to try to rephrase these things in ways that uh, that draw it out. Yeah, and so that's a good thing that you're doing there. If um if you are this special person, Jesus, you shouldn't have to be hungry. Right? You shouldn't have to go through this. You shouldn't have to be out here for 40 days. And if God was so good to you, if you could really trust your father, then you would he would let you um, enjoy yourself. He would let you satisfy your hunger. He wouldn't, he would never require you to, um, you know, to, to experience that, right? And the, so there is that implication, hey, trust me. I know better than, than your father. Um, trust me. Listen to me. And in that way, I, I think that's a, con- a connection that goes back to what Adam experienced in the garden as well, because the the temptation to Adam there in the garden is to trust what the devil says more than what God says. You know, God, God, you're not really going to die. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. It's a very, I mean, I think there's a, a very, again, the, the parallel to what happens in the wilderness is certainly there, but I think with the way Luke has set this up with Jesus as the son of Adam, the son of God, we're invited to make that connection to Adam in the garden. Yeah, yeah. the The suggestion is seemingly innocent. This is what I mean. It's an inher- There's nothing inherently wrong in eating. It's not bad to eat. Um, the problem comes in where faith. If there's a breach of faith, <clears throat> then that becomes the issue. 
Right. What what has the word of God said? And that goes to what Jesus, you know, man does not live by bread alone. Now, in, and Luke doesn't record the rest, but we know the rest of the statement, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's there's where the faith is. So that's the, the first temptation. And the second temptation it, in Luke, we have verse 5, the devil took him, Jesus, up and showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, this one, I mean, seems a little more straightforward, I suppose. Like, of course it's wrong to worship the devil, right? I mean, so, and that's where that's where Jesus goes, you know, who are, who are you worshiping? So take us into the second temptation. Yeah, so the the thing that's not wrong is receiving glory. It's not wrong for Jesus, and in fact, it is part of his uh, mission is that he will be glorified. So um, if you think of John's gospel, especially that theme of glory comes out. Jesus even prays to his father, glorify the son as I was glorified with you in the glory I had with it. It's like he can't help but say glory over and over again. So glory is not um, wrong. It's not bad. And to desire glory, even I don't think is wrong or, or bad. It's how you, how you get there, right? How you, how are you, what is the path you're going to walk to achieve that glory? And, you know, there's some, there's some question, can the devil actually, uh, make good on his promise here, make good on his offer. And, uh, you know, that's something we can talk about in a minute. But, um, what he's saying is I'll give you, look, you, I'll give you messianic glory, I'll give you the obedience of the nations. I'll give you the 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 authority over these kingdoms, and I won't even require that you suffer for it. All you have to do is is worship me, is serve me, and you can have it all, right? And so he's sort of offering a uh, or trying to offer a um, a different way for Jesus to come to that end. And so Christ's answer is, that's not that's not me, right? That's not my mission. That's not the point here just to achieve the end. I have to go about it in the proper way. Mm. And, uh, you know, I, I must serve God. Mm. So again, that there's the temptation that is specific to Jesus as the Christ, the temptation being to seize the glory for his own apart from the suffering that the Father has willed for him. Now, to the, to that question, can the the devil deliver on the promise? Is he speaking truly here? And, and I mean, you, you kind of wonder because he he says, "I'll give you all this authority and and their glory because it's been delivered to me. I give it to whom I will." Is he is he speaking truly there? Is he lying? Can he really deliver? What what do you think? Well, I think uh, Jesus. Jesus seems to take it as if, uh, right, um, not that he is completely affirming the devil here, but he doesn't say, you can't actually offer me that, right? His, the way out of this temptation is not to say, ah, you're a liar. Uh, see, you couldn't, you couldn't really give me that, so I'm not going to worship you, right? The way out is to say, I only worship the Lord, right? I only serve the Lord. Um, the devil is called the prince of this world. He is called the prince of the power of the air, um, and so he does exercise uh, a considerable authority over the the kingdoms of this world. Um, at the same time, that authority is only given to him. He's, I think, Luther used to say things like he's um, he's he's the devil is God's devil, and so he only is permitted to do what God permits him to do, what He allows him to do. Um, 
And so again, have I answered that question by not answering it? Uh, I think that <laughs> it, it's not that it doesn't matter, but that uh, Jesus doesn't, that's not important in the temptation hmm. is whether, oh, is he telling the truth or not? Um, we know that he's a liar and the father of lies. So of course he's, he's probably lying here. But at the same time, the devil does have a, a very active role in the the kingdoms of this world. Yeah, I think you're right that the the answer to to whether or not the devil can deliver on this, what he's offering, or if he's lying or not, doesn't make a difference in terms of what happens with Jesus' temptation. I think the reason yeah. the question comes up is because of what it says about the kingdoms of this world and the power that exists in this world, and and whether or not it can be maybe exercised in in godly ways. I mean, if if the devil is the one who, as it says, you know, I will give authority and glory because it's been delivered to me. If he's the one that's in charge of that, what does that say about worldly power? I think that's the reason that the question comes up. And, and again, it, I think I think the way you didn't answer the question, that I mean, you know, the devil is the prince of this world, and we know he does exercise power in very in very real ways. I mean, go to what you brought up in Luke 11, that, that the devil is this strong man holding us captive. That's something that Jesus has to break. And, and again, whether or not the devil can deliver isn't what Jesus is focused on here. It's the fact that he's come to break that power, and he's going to break the devil's power, not by doing what the devil wants, but rather by following yeah. his Father's will, worshiping the Father only. And even if, you know, even if we were to say that, yes, the devil can make good on this promise, if he is the one who is giving Jesus the authority, um, then Jesus is under his, he, he owes the devil in the end. And that kind of authority, he's, he may have, uh, he may still be the Messiah at that point, but he's the devil's Messiah. And so he's not actually setting anyone free. He's just further, he would be further enslaving. Right. And, and so Jesus keeps things in the right order. Now, the, the third temptation, Luke tells us that Jesus is taken to Jerusalem by the devil. The devil puts on the, the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil says, throw yourself down. And then he quotes some scripture himself. He quotes from, from Psalm 91. Jesus answers, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's going on in this last temptation? Yeah, the, the devil is quoting here scripture, and uh, he's this is from Psalm 91. He's saying to Jesus, um, you know that God will protect you, right? And uh, you have these promises from, you have these messianic psalms that even say he will supernaturally protect you. So uh, let's see it. Right. Let's make it happen. Why don't you? Why don't you? And it, it's sort of a temptation to um, that plays on trust. OK, if you trust God so much, prove it. Right. Throw yourself off the temple and let's see if he'll uh, if he'll actually do this. And so, again, this is what I mean. Trusting God is is uh, there's nothing inherently sinful in Jesus trusting that God will protect him. But the temptation comes, the, the evil inclination here uh, is that, um, well, what is Je how does Jesus put it? You're going to be putting the Lord to the test. And again, if you look back, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, I think here. Um, this is what the people of Israel did at um, the waters of Massa and Meribah, right, where they, they're in the wilderness and they have nothing to drink. And so they grumble and complain to Moses. And it says at the end, after 
um, the Lord says to Moses, you know, hit this rock and then I'll make water gush out of the rock. Um, it says that the people were, were testing the Lord, putting him to the test and saying, is the Lord among us or not? Right. We, we want him to prove it. And so what they're do, what the temptation is, is to kind of treat God like an experiment, right? Um, make him, make him prove himself to you. Don't take him at his word and wait for him. Make him, you know, look for creative, um, new signs that he really is doing what he said he will do instead of just trusting that, yeah, uh, he'll take care of me and I don't need to throw myself off a temple for him to prove it. I mean, what's, what I think is, what I think is helpful about the quotation that Jesus gives and the the context that you brought out is is the situation of the people in Israel because what the Lord ends up doing there at Massa and Meribah is is a miraculous thing. You know, I mean, like that there was no water there, and then suddenly there was, and so it's it's not the you know it's not that God couldn't do this. Jesus could throw himself from the pinnacle. God could save him in that way, but there's not a promise attached to that. The, the devil tempts Jesus to do something and, and ask God to do something that he just hasn't promised to do, yeah. even though he certainly could. And I think that that context of the of what what's happening there and what's being talked about in Deuteronomy 6 helps in that regard. And this is, um, to bring it back to, you know, how is this a temptation kind of unique to Christ as the Messiah? Well, um, I would put it this way. He the the confidence that Jesus is to have in carrying there is a a kind of suffering that he has to undergo in that he doesn't constantly walk around with miraculous things attending him right he he just goes through his life and yes there are miracles there are wondrous things that he does and that happen around him um, but he's not going around like a magician who's just constantly kind of snapping his fingers and and amazing things happen you know he he endures and he lives as a normal man no different than his disciples um so so much so that when they get to um arrest him in the garden of gethsemane they need judas to right or they think that they need G judas because how are these romans supposed to know which of these 12 guys they're supposed to arrest he looks just like everybody else um, and so the devil is in some sense saying, why don't you get God to do something really spectacular for you? Why don't you have him do something that everyone here will see so that everyone will recognize you as the Messiah? You shouldn't go unnoticed. You shouldn't have to live a normal, ordinary life. You should be brilliant. Well, and again, you know, get God to do something spectacular for you out of order, because Jesus does know that God is going to do something spectacular for him in the resurrection. But but the devil's got that out of order again. The The path to the glory is through the suffering. And once again here, that the devil has those things reversed. Let God do this spectacular thing for you right now, before the suffering, without the suffering. Jesus instead knows that he must go through the suffering, and then the resurrection does await him, according to his Father's promise, on the other side. Yeah. And the, and the reason that I want to make a big point out of that is because um, <clears throat> what happens here in his temptation right at the beginning of his ministry is a um, it's anticipating or it's foreshadowing whatever word you want to use there, Tim. It is um, this is what's going to happen on a grander scale in his crucifixion and resurrection. And so when he when he conquers the devil here, when he succeeds in resisting the temptations here, 
there's also in anticipation of the benefits that will later come on the other side of the cross. And so those uh, benefits are things like he drives out the demons and he heals people and he proclaims the good news, right? He sets the captives at liberty. Um, all of that is a is going to be taken to its completion or uh, another level in the cross and the resurrection. And now that's what happens in the, the life of the church is that that, um, that liberty, the liberty from sin and from the power of the devil and from the fear of death, that's what we um, deliver and that's what faith receives. I mean, I think the way Luke ends this lets you know that more is coming, that, that the victory Jesus has won here is going to be made greater when the devil comes back at this opportune time. I think very yeah. much pointing us forward to what Jesus will do by his death and resurrection. With about two minutes here, Pastor Appold, we've, we've talked a lot about the temptation and that there is a, a proper use of Jesus as example here, but the primary thing is to see Jesus as our Savior. As we close this morning, what is the comfort in seeing Jesus tempted and then seeing him defeat the devil as he does? Oh, it's that we have a mighty Lord, right? We have a, there is a champion. Um, this is what's, what is hit so well in um, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For us fights a valiant one whom God himself elected. Um, that, I mean, just think of how how often we we fail in in the face of temptation and how often we fall and not just me personally but this goes this is all the way back through humanity and you see it in so many different ways in so many different places um evil spreads and it it seems to constantly be growing I don't, maybe not constantly but it, it's growing and it um it gets its fingers everywhere and it just destroys people's lives and you you can if you look around at that, it's easy to lose heart and be totally discouraged. And so to know that there is someone who has resisted the devil, that he lives, that he is the champion, that he is the Lord, that he uh, is risen and at the right hand of the Father, um, and that he now calls us to himself and says, I'll be your Lord, and uh, I'm going to give this same spirit to you uh, and bring you into my victory. Uh, that's a, I, I think it's a, just a powerful message. Pastor David Appold is pastor at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us today with Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 4 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.